Hey everyone, this is Under the Surface and you're tuned into Valley Free Radio. This is WXOJLP Northampton 103.3 FM. We're not only on the radio, but also live streaming on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. And I'm Amy Landau. Thanks so much for joining me today. Now, if you're a regular listener on this show, you might have heard the solo show I did on sexism back on January 31st on New Year's Eve. For that show, I was inspired by the Me Too movement and the fall from grace of Harvey Weinstein and then the leagues of famous men falling after him like dominoes as a direct consequence of women speaking out about sexual harassment and assault in the workplace. And as we know, this pattern is still occurring at a rapid pace, almost too rapid to follow. It's all coming out in the open in every sector imaginable, like a tsunami, from the world of women's sports to the world of media and publishing, from politics to comedy, and even elite institutions like the Metropolitan Opera and the Philharmonic. And most of the spheres I just named involve famous people. That list doesn't even scratch the surface of the legions of unknown, unfamous men say, in the food or hotel industry, for example, and the many women affected, they're too afraid to speak up because of fear of losing their jobs. It's everywhere, and it's always been around us, it seems, the whole time, right under our noses, and yet only now are we reckoning with it, most likely because of the man currently occupying the White House, our own president, who has a very disturbing track record of his own. So on New Year's Eve, when I did that solo show, I decided to reflect on my own experiences from youth to adulthood and to put into words the cultural messages I got from both consciously and unconsciously that made maleness seem more desirable than femaleness. Well, today I thought it would be interesting to continue that conversation, especially in light of yesterday's Women's March, which happened all around the country and even beyond, to sort of compare notes with another woman on sexism, particularly a younger woman. And that woman for this intergenerational conversation today is Jessica Batchelor. Jessica, or Jess, as I call her, and as she's known by her friends and family, is 31, so she's quite a bit younger than me. Let's just say that I came of age in the early 80s. Jess is a writer and self-described movie junkie from Central Connecticut. She's also an outspoken feminist, and her embrace of feminism actually began at a very young age, at the age of only 14. Interestingly, she credits the 70s TV show Maud, starring B. Arthur, as the catalyst that pushed her in that direction. As an undergraduate at Central Connecticut State University, Jess presented her own original essay called The Absence of a Woman's Gaze in the public forum of a gender studies conference. Her essay was about the lack of the female gaze in mainstream media. And before I go any further, I do want to mention, as I did in my previous show, that we are going to be talking about some disturbing issues and may reference some offensive language. So if you happen to have young children around, you may want to encourage them to relocate. But back to my guest, on a personal note, I also want to mention that Jess was my coworker for a brief stint at a large institution in Western Mass that will remain nameless. We worked in adjacent cubicles in one of those giant impersonal maze-like offices that make you feel like a needle in a haystack. But during the time we worked together, we connected strongly on, the, on topics of sexism and feminism. And this is why I decided it would be a good idea to have her as a guest on today's show. So Jess, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. So you said you were an outspoken feminist since the age of only 14, and this had something to do with the old 70s TV show Maud with B. Arthur, and I grew up watching that myself. Can you tell me about that? 
Yes, well, gosh, I haven't really thought about this for a long time. I just remember really thinking that B. Arthur was hilarious um, in general and as her character, Maud. And, you know, it was the 70s. It was the sexual revolution. So she was very vocal. And I don't remember any lines or episodes mm-hmm. in particular. I love the show in general, but I just loved how she didn't take any crap, so to speak, mm-hmm. from especially her um her, I believe it was her cousin Archie Bunker from All in the Family, which is actually what created the spinoff of Maude. Oh, I Maud. forgot that. Yeah. Wow. And I watched that show a lot, too, even more than Maude. Right. So I think you had a chance to listen to my previous show on sexism and my own experiences growing up. And mm-hmm. I talked about the ways that I internalized sexist messages. For instance, how when I was a teenager, my female friend and I liked to say the phrase, I'm a man, mm-hmm. to each other. And I was just wondering, did you experience anything along those lines or any kind of unconscious self-disparagement like that? Oh, absolutely. When I was in high school and I was in a very, you know, well, I was young and naive and my fem- my feminism at that time was growing. I, I, I conflated everything feminine with weakness. I thought makeup was sexist and, mm-hmm. and um, weakening. And I, I, you know, wore um, camouflage army jackets to school and I tried to exude this very masculine tough image all the time and actively strike down every female stereotype I could think of well I don't like chatting a lot and I don't like makeup and I don't like any of these things that girls are supposed to like because I'm a feminist and I realized well there's nothing wrong with being feminine at all so that's interesting because in a way you were that was your view of what feminism meant to you. And in doing that, you feel like you are sort of internalizing a sexist message in that effort. Exactly. Exactly. I was unknowingly at the time internalizing this message that Mm -hmm. femininity is inferior. Mm -hmm. I see. You know, it's interesting. I also wore the green army jacket when I was a teenager. Wow. Yeah, it was kind of like one of those like very soft, you know, jackets that had been through the wash many times and sort of faded. Right. And it was considered cool to wear that jacket. And, yeah. But I, I never really thought about it too much in that light until now. Right. Um, so how about street harassment or even assault or I mean, just as a young girl and just obviously whatever you're comfortable with sharing? Sure. So as far as street harassment goes, I've stopped counting how many times I've been catcalled and wolf whistled and had strange men even as a young child though as a young child fortunately no the street well no actually there was my first encounter with street harassment I was 13 years old and I was with my mother Mm -hmm. and we were walking and there were um, there was a crowd of men behind us and they were laughing and joking and I just remember feeling really scared because it was dark it was late at night and my mom turned her her head over her shoulder and said, what do you want, guys? And they, I'll never forget this, they said, we want a piece of meat. Oh, my God. And I just, that was my first time feeling vulnerable because of being female. How old were you then? 13, maybe 12. Wow. Uh, It was pretty bad. And and then... Do you remember asking your mother what they meant? No. (laughs) I I kind of inferred what they meant. Mm -hmm. But I was confused as to why they would say that. Yeah. To me, it seemed so random. Yeah. Yeah. Very uncomfortable. Yeah, and I know that when you were in college, you presented an original paper at a gender studies conference called The Absence of a Woman's Gaze. Yes. And this is so interesting. Um, What do you think a woman's gaze would look like in mainstream media or the movies? And are we beginning to see it? I think we are beginning to see it more. So my paper focused on 
not only the absence of it, obviously, but also when it happened, how it happened. And I remember digging through Google images for a long time, trying to find examples of women looking at men in a way that clearly showed desire or even objectification, if you will. And it was really hard Mm -hmm. to find images. I, I managed to dig up a couple of stock photos of women glancing at men. And of course, these were staged photos. Mm -hmm. And they always seem to gaze either in groups, you Mm -hmm. know, like giggling schoolgirls, like, hee hee, look at this guy that just walked past us on the beach in a very, very passive, on the sidelines way. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, the glances were subtle. And I remember saying at the conference where I presented my essay, so in a nutshell, what I've discovered is that men are comfortable screaming that they're horny and women are only comfortable shouting it, mm-hmm. you know, because I think men have a lot more cultural permission to express their sexual desires than we do even uh-huh. still. But would the woman's gaze um, be the same in a way? So, I mean, what you're saying, I, I get what you mean, but it's that's mostly in terms of like sexual desire. But are there other ways that like uh, that movies would, you know, if, if our culture changed that it would reflect a woman's gaze? Would the woman's gaze look different <laughs> from a man's gaze? You know? Right. Well, or the traditional cliche man's gaze. Sure. I mean, when I picture it, I picture what I've grown up seeing my whole life, which is the male gaze, the slow pan up someone from the feet to the head, uh-huh. you know, someone objectifying a woman's body. Right. Yeah. I see that same thing only with a man subject instead mm-hmm. of a woman subject. Uh-huh. You know, you would be focusing on different things, you know, Maybe you would be focusing more on biceps, uh-huh. torso, uh-huh. you know, things like that. Uh-huh. I guess what I was getting at is I wonder if there's something even more fundamentally different about how women even view men. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, obviously you, it's an individual thing, but it seems like it, it may not be the first thing that a woman thinks of as, you know, the man's body. And, uh, you know, it could be, but it's not. Sure. I don't know if it's as instinctive or whatever typical for the way that it is for men to view women that way it's easier for um the male gaze to even occur simply because of clothing i think Mm -hmm. just broadly speaking women's clothing is tighter and more revealing Mm -hmm. and men's clothing is typically baggy and loose and i think we've been forced to use our imaginations a lot more when Mm -hmm. we see a good looking guy Mm -hmm. you know we can't really see a lot unless he's in tight clothing which Mm -hmm. most men don't really wear Mm -hmm. yeah that's a good point and i know you experienced um sexual harassment in the actual workplace which is incredibly relevant to this avalanche of allegations from weinstein on and we're not going to name names here of course Mm-mm. but can you describe what happened to you yes so i was working at a family owned business i was young i was still in college actually and this family business um had um let me see probably about 15 employees at the most. And the owner, the owner of this establishment, his son worked there. And his son was a young, full disclosure, conventionally good looking guy. Mm -hmm. And I was in the office by myself one day. I was working on the computer and he came in and he started massaging my shoulders. Wow. And I told him to F off Mm -hmm. and he didn't. And I told him again and then he did. So the whole experience probably lasted about four seconds, but I just remember feeling kind of panicked, Mm -hmm. helpless, 
and really embarrassed. Mm -hmm. I remember feeling my face fill up with blood just because I was so embarrassed. And I thought, God, if he sees me blushing, he's going to think I liked it or Mm -hmm. something. And I didn't say anything. There was no HR department. He was the owner's son. He had total impunity. So, Uh and I think about that sometimes. It, It really, it wasn't damaging to me. It was something that I moved on from pretty quickly, but it was sometimes something I ask myself, like, well, why didn't you complain about it? Mm-hmm. You know, I guess I felt like it was pointless and I just wanted to forget about it and move on. And so you stayed in the position. It didn't make you want to quit your job at that point? No, mm-hmm. no, it didn't. But there was actually one more experience oh. I had at the store. And this one was very upsetting to me mm-hmm. because it actually involved my boss. So at the time, so this was not the owner of the store. He was my you know, direct supervisor. And he asked me to build a shelf to put some merchandise on. And I was excited about that because mm-hmm. that that place was kind of old school, mm-hmm. old fashioned. You know, the, there were not many female employees there. I was actually only one of two at the time, um, maybe three. And... So I was like, I get to build a shelf, something Mm -hmm. that typically only men are asked to do. And then he walked by and very abruptly said, stop doing what you're doing and go do something else. And I was like, oh, okay. And I didn't understand why. And then he told me later, your shirt was, and then he trailed off, implying that I had been showing too much cleavage. Oh. Which could not have possibly been further from the truth. Uh And I just remember becoming irate. Uh And I said, are you serious? Because when he walked past me and looked at me, I must have been bent over, you know, trying to put Mm -hmm. screws in. And he got uncomfortable, which Mm -hmm. is obviously his problem, his issues. And that's why he pulled me off that project. And he said, well, I just didn't want some creep to walk by and see you. And I went, yeah, some creep. Oh, that's so telling. <laughs> yeah. The some creep. Who was the some creep? It Him. Was, yeah, exactly. That, that was what I was implying. Yeah, I know. I'm right. Just so, yeah. Wow, that says a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And he was the one who put, who told you to build the shelf, or was that someone else? Yes, he was the one who told me to build the shelf, and he walked by. He caught a minimal <laughs> glimpse of cleavage and got so mm-hmm. up in a tizzy, he, mm-hmm. he just couldn't let me do it anymore. And I was just like, wow, you have oh. issues. And he ended up apologizing for oh. that. That's interesting because it reminds me of the whole dress code issue around the school system that, you know, how young women are sometimes made to line up while people check to see that the skirts are long enough and, you know, everything is covering them up more because they're putting the onus on women, the young girls, rather than on boys for their own learning. What about boys who... Distracting. Right, exactly. And and you never hear about boys being sent home because their pants were falling down and their boxer shorts were hanging out. Oh, there you go. Why not? That's distracting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So let's see. Why do you think this Weinstein news became such a huge flashpoint that it unleashed such a huge cascade of accounts of harassment and assault, you know, toppling so many men in every sphere? I mean, do you think it really stems from Weinstein? And why now? You know, why? uh, Why wasn't it, you know, started with Trump or with Mm. Bill Cosby? That's something I've thought about. I feel like it started with Bill Cosby. Mm -hmm. And because Weinstein was this monolith Mm -hmm. in Hollywood, that's when it became like a domino effect. Mm -hmm. When he toppled, Mm -hmm. all these men sort of under him, so to speak, started to as well. I've wondered, though, like if it part of it's because Weinstein is a white man, Mm. you know, if that could have had some effect, you know, before people might have sort of said oh well that's just Bill Cosby and you know kind of a racist way sort of 
in a weird use of racism, but sort of said, okay, that happens to someone like him or whatever. I mean, people were very shocked when that happened since he represented the family man and all that. But you would think that there would be more connection in other areas, but there wasn't. more fallout for other famous men at that time. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't considered that. And um, now in in my show that I did, I thought I talked about how I sometimes feel sort of stuck in a conundrum of wanting to break free of these sexist ideas, say about romance or looks or body image, to name a few, but also that I'm kind of ensnared in them to to a degree because, you know, you want this sense of belonging. Do you think there's a way to break free of that? To break free of wanting to abide by something. Or just, um, you know, with the fact that we want to belong in the culture we're in, but that in, in some ways, I feel like we've been so, we've sort of been brainwashed in a sense in terms of how we think about romance, how we think we should look as women, mm. you know, and that kind of thing. So I'm just wondering if you're, you th- you've thought about that conundrum in a way. Sure, yeah. I think it's getting easier and easier to break gender norms in whatever Mm -hmm. way you can and when it comes to romance and dating I think we still have this expectation that men will be the active initiators and women will be the passive receivers Mm -hmm. wait for him to contact you first wait for him to go in for the kiss wait for him to initiate sex and I think that's changed a lot Mm -hmm. and I think that's healthy to not always expect men to you know Mm -hmm. ask out on the date and always pick up the check and Mm -hmm. etc and of course that's speaking from a heterosexual point of view and it would be very different if we were talking about a homosexual point of view that's very true right yeah Yeah. this is a heteronormative way of speaking (laughs) about it because you know as straight women acknowledge it yeah yeah and um, this past week, there was an article, speaking of the heteronormative point of view, there was an article about the actor-comedian Aziz Ansari that's got everybody in a tizzy, um, and it was on this website, babe.net, if you don't know, describing how an anonymous woman uh, described her unpleasant date with this actor, in which she came away feeling that she'd been assaulted, uh, and yet she kind of was part of, she was part of this sexual encounter, and, you know, um, did you read about that? And what was your reaction to it? I read that article twice, actually, mm-hmm. because I thought it was intriguing. And I wanted to get a very clear timeline of the events as they unfolded in all of their awkwardness and mm-hmm. all of that in my head. I want to say first, I'm not biased towards Aziz Ansari because mm-hmm. I don't actually like him as a comedian. I mm-hmm. personally don't find him funny. Mm-hmm. So I'm not coming from this place where I want to defend him because I liked him. Right. I will say I feel sorry for the woman. Mm-hmm. And I also feel a little bit sorry for Aziz, actually, mm-hmm. because I think that this was a very awkward and aggressive mm-hmm. date and the whole world knows about it. <laughs> and that's something that is very pertinent to fourth wave social media feminism is it's all about instant sharing of information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But did you think that, um, you know, that, I mean, did you think that what was on here, like some people are saying, oh, this is destroying the whole Me Too movement by, you know, kind of putting this in with sexual assault. Because, um, and I did think it was a little strange personally that, well, I did find the whole article strange. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that she didn't come forward herself, but that the publisher approached her to tell the story, right. you know. Um, so I was just wondering your thoughts on that. Like, do you like the fact that she said apparently it felt like sexual assault? Would you consider what happened to be sexual assault? 
personally, no. Right. I don't think that that was assault. And I think to call that assault is a disservice Mm -hmm. to people who have actually been assaulted. Right. You know, vis-a-vis rape attempts and Mm -hmm. groping and things like that. I think that is assault. I think what happened was an awkward date. But I also think that he was being too aggressive Mm -hmm. and he was ignoring clear signals and requests from her to slow down Mm -hmm. chill out but you know we weren't there yeah it's hard to say if you weren't flies on the wall i think they were both a little drunk Uh because i know they started drinking before they went back to his place that's a good point i think there's a lot of factors involved here i think one of them is that aziz is a household name now he's a celebrity and i think in his mind he probably was thinking how lucky Mm-hmm. Would you be to be able to have sex with me and tell all your friends, I slept with a season, sorry. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. he was just coming from a different mindset. Yeah. I mean, and also in truth, she didn't say she was sexually assaulted. She said it felt like a sexual assault. Right. And, you know, I kind of agree with, I heard an interview this morning that was sort of discussing that, um, that in a way it's the fact that she was confused while this was going on, that that is a whole other conversation to have, you know, like mm-hmm. how women you know, can learn how to clearly express themselves and know, like, when to leave a situation. Yes, exactly. I think it's a two-way street. Yeah. And I know you have strong opinions about the concept of trigger warnings on college campuses, safe spaces, and free speech zones. Do you think that what we're talking about now ties into that category in any way in your mind? Not really. Mm -hmm. Not really. Except if you took that article and put it on some political groups on Facebook, it would definitely be prefaced with content warnings and trigger warnings for assault Mm -hmm. or rape or, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. And so what's your um, feeling about the whole trigger warning (laughs) issue um, (laughs) when, say, sexual assault is discussed? Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that that movement started in a very well-intentioned and rational, helpful way. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong inherently with putting a trigger warning or a content warning before um, graphic description of rape or violence or death. Mm -hmm. But it has gone too far Mm -hmm. and it's become self-paradic because Mm -hmm. people, especially on certain groups on Facebook, which are being commonly referred to as left book now, Mm -hmm. um, they will content warn for the color green or donuts in case people have an eating disorder. And it's become insulting to people. Why for the color green? It is the most random, (laughs) arbitrary, Mm -hmm. and silly thing. Mm -hmm. And you're not allowed to question them. Mm -hmm. Because questioning it is automatically seen as offensive Mm -hmm. and disrespecting people with PTSD or or triggers. And Mm -hmm. I also have to say, what's really important to know is that if you do have PTSD, if you are a sexual abuse survivor, avoidance is not the psychologically healthy way Mm -hmm. to cope not to say that everybody should just be you know desensitized Mm -hmm. but you you have to I know of um, someone who was raped and their therapist made them tell their story over and over and over again to desensitize themselves to it Mm -hmm. you you know not going through life afraid and and being able to get set off by the mention of a word is really Mm -hmm. important yeah and I feel like in a way that a lot of the conversations we're having now you know, it's bad that we weren't having them earlier. So it would be, too, you know, even worse if we are muting ourselves because of fear of offending people or you yes. know, triggering them in some way. Exactly. 
Well, I think this is a good time to take a a little break right now, and we're going to hear a song that Jess picked out and some messages. So stay with us. We'll be back soon. back. Thanks for tuning in. This is Under the Surface on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ Northampton at 103.3 FM. I'm Amy Landau, and my guest today is Jess Batchelor, a writer, movie buff, and outspoken feminist from Central Connecticut. And we just heard the song Salad by No Small Children, and Jess picked out this song. I'd never heard it before. What made you pick that song, Jess? I recently discovered No Small Children, which is an all-female band. So, you know, two guitarists, lead vocalists, and the and the drummer are all school teachers. And oh, wow. they, they wanted a place where they could, <laughs> jokes the female vocalist, drink and swear. And so they decided to form a band called No Small Children, implying, you know, no children allowed. We're teachers. We want to break from Mm -hmm. teaching kids all day. Oh, I see. That makes sense. That's really interesting. And it's also like a different um, 
thing for a woman to declare, especially in that kind of traditionally, uh, conventionally woman-oriented job. Exactly. You You wouldn't expect a school Mm -hmm. teacher to, you know, form a rock band. Yeah. And so the song uh, is something about, I couldn't catch like all the lyrics, but to do with like not wanting salad, but wanting to eat like a real meal or something. Yes, This emphasis on, on weight and, you know, eating just tiny little bird food exactly you know she's like you know the waiter brings a basket of butter and buns and everyone's happy with their which is a little bit problematic to say manly chow which is Uh really just food but you know it's like (laughs) i want to eat that but i have to eat like a rabbit till the day i die Uh (laughs) yeah and so let's get back to our previous conversation on picking up where we left off before the break I'm I'm sure you're aware of this ongoing conversation about rape culture and the issue of consent on college campuses, although I would say this should be an issue not just on college campuses. Mm -hmm. Um, And this area has a big spotlight on it more than ever with the Me Too movement. But back in the 90s, there was a feminist group at Antioch College in Ohio working to prevent rape and sexual assault. And that group created a set of rules requiring consent for every phase of sexual activity. And at the time, they were ridiculed for it. Um, there was like a famous sketch on Saturday, Saturday Night Live making fun of it, that you have to arbitrate a kiss and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we know that 85 colleges, in fact, are under investigation for their handling of sexual assault complaints. And California even has um, a law on the books um, that requires, that says that the need for consent isn't just limited to the onset of sexual activity. And a woman can say no at any point during a sexual encounter. And you know, must be heated. Mm. So anyway, I'm curious about your take on all, all this. I mean, although I believe that a woman has to be in control of her sexual experiences, I also know that 90% of communication, I think it's about that, is nonverbal. Yes. And it seems like that would be a particular, particularly true during a sexual encounter. So is it realistic to work from this model? From the Antioch model? Uh, Yeah, and just um, because this is what's, you know, these colleges are all being investigated because they have this problem uh, and of not addressing these complaints the way they should. Right. So do you think that, that, what do you think of just this issue of, of kind of defining consent and saying, you know, that, I mean, is it realistic? Will people really do this? Yeah. What I think is realistic is this, saying that a woman can withdraw consent at any time. And by the way, men can withdraw consent at any time, too. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. But to tell people that during sex, consent must be enthusiastically and consistently given during the entirety (laughs) of the act, I think is unrealistic. And I Mm -hmm. think it's a little controlling, Mm -hmm. you know, because I think for most people, most (laughs) of sex is Mm nonverbal. And it is about body language and what the what you're doing, I think Mm -hmm. it sends a very clear message of whether or not you're into it. Mm -hmm. And to tell people how to conduct themselves in that very personal, private way, is not realistic. And I think it's kind of intrusive. It's like, well, how, how am I supposed to give enthusiastic consent the whole time? Like, you want me yeah. to what, you know, keep saying yes, like, no, I'm not yeah. going to do that. I don't feel like doing that. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like a tricky thing, though, from these colleges standpoint, like, what are they going to do? How are they going to better address this issue if right. they don't define it? You know, like, but I have, I don't even understand what goes on behind closed doors in these trials, like how they figure out if consent consent was given or not in a lot of these cases or in how much how they you know what else they base um you know the truth on right figure out what was what happened it's such a muddy issue especially in college campuses because of 
how much drinking is involved right. in a lot of these cases. Memories are blurred when you have drunken sex or mm-hmm. or fool around with people. And I think it's also a little bit controversial, but pertinent to bring up the fact that regret does not equal rape. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of women wake up the next day and they completely regret a hookup that they had. And right. they try to say, you coerced me. Oh, really? I, I think that that has happened. Yeah. And I don't think it's fair. Okay. Because I, I, I'm that's interesting. I'm kind of surprised to hear you say that just because I've, you know, I've heard that statement made before, Mm. but I've always also, you know, heard that many people have said that most women don't come forward. Mm. They don't, you know, want to speak to authorities because they're not listened to or they're dismissed. Right. So that it's the opposite of that. Like, so that we, the, the fact is we have this track record of kind of not listening to women when they say that this happens. Right. So to, to think that, oh, it's a matter of, oh, she regrets what she did. So now she's saying she's, she was coerced. Right. Is, um, that seems like that could be like uh, a little misguided. Sure. Yeah, it does seem like it could be misguided. I'm not saying that that's a common occurrence, but I think that for people who are young and experimenting with binge drinking um, and who don't have a lot of experiences to draw from, you know, waking up embarrassed and and ashamed, um, they might want to say, like, I don't want this guy in my life anymore. Now he won't leave me alone. And, you know, he was he was too aggressive. And I don't know anybody personally who has who has done this. But Oh, you don't no. Okay. Because what I was really going to ask you is maybe women have had that thought, but or said that to the person they were involved with. But would they do the next step of going to authorities and lying about it? Right, right. Which is, that's been the accusation. That's what people were saying about Bill Cosby. Oh, these women are just lying. That's what Trump has said about his accusers. They just want some, you know, a few minutes, 15 minutes of fame. And that's why they're saying this. They're liars. Right. Yeah. I'm not saying that they're liars. I think sometimes there's just a lot of confusion, Mm -hmm. you know, because when you're trying to recall something that happened when you were drunk, it's memory is a weird thing. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes I think it can... Uh, just be a matter of someone being confused and and having a really fuzzy memory Mm -hmm. and not knowing how to navigate this properly and, you know, not necessarily going to authorities and making up stories to try Mm -hmm. to, you know, crucify some innocent guy. Uh Just, you know, being confused and young. And And I'm wondering, um, what about this thing that some people describe as a conflict between second and and third wave feminists? I'm talking, for example, about how pop stars like Miley Cyrus and Nicki Minaj, who consider themselves feminists, show off their bodies in very overtly sexual ways, like twerking. Mm -hmm. Yet they insist they're in command of their sexuality and have a right to assert it however they want. Whereas older second wave feminists like Gloria Steinem or the pop singer Sinead O'Connor, who wrote, she wrote an open letter, actually, to Miley Cyrus on this issue. Um, They think that these women are falling prey to exploitation, you know, by patriarchy. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering how you see that issue. And and it's funny because I think back to Madonna and what people are saying, oh, she's sort of making herself a sex object. But there was also, no, she's in control. She's, you know, a feminist and has and she has a right to show off her body and be sexy and express her sexual her sexuality. Yeah. Her music. So. Right. So I jive way more with the third wave than the second wave, broadly speaking. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to this issue of pop stars having really raunchy music videos, Mm -hmm. I tend to 
to agree with Shanae O'Connor, which, <laughs> by the way, I did not read her letter, uh-huh. but just the general sentiment that you're not really, you know, this powerful in control. It's about me commanding my sexuality. I just think it's you're a pop star. You're an entertainer mm-hmm. showing as much skin as possible. You're trying to be titillating. And yeah. I, I don't think that's empowering. I, uh-huh. I just don't. I uh-huh. think that Madonna was empowering because I feel like she did it on her terms. Mm-hmm. She didn't let herself be controlled by, you know, these creative directors. She was like, I'm doing this. I'm writing my book. I'm make you know, I just felt like she had a lot more agency in her sexuality. I I remember watching Madonna's music videos growing up and thinking like, wow, she just seems powerful. When I see Miley Cyrus, I'm just kind of like, eh, you just seem like a cog in the machine. Mm-hmm. I mean, but even with, I mean, with Madonna, you could say that, well, they know that sex sells mm. and it's it, they make a lot of money yeah. if they do what they do. So, it, you know, even in Miley Cyrus's mind, it could be, well, yes, I am manipulating, but or, but I'm the one manipulating rather than the patriarchy manipulating me. But then, of course, Sinead, Sinead O'Connor in her letter, she was talking about how she never did that. She never, um, you know, uh, exposed her body or, you know, what she says caved in a way to what was she was told to do in order to make money, but she was still very successful. Right. Right. Yeah. I would never go so far as to say, you know, Miley Cyrus or other pop stars shouldn't do that. Don't Mm -hmm. do that. You're Mm -hmm. objectifying yourself Mm -hmm. because that's controlling. Mm -hmm. And it's not about controlling how people, you know, use their bodies. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I just don't, I don't really feel like I'm fully on board with this anything goes attitude. No matter what I do, it's empowering because I'm a woman. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I hear you with that. And do you think there are other ways in which we're blind to sexism besides the things that we've talked about? I mean, and do you think that we're still not talking about some things? Like, does anything come to mind for you? I do. It's hard for me to articulate them, but I do watch a lot of movies and TV shows. And shows that aren't ever described as sexist, just, you know, just regular comedies, mm-hmm. uh, sitcoms. If you pay attention, you'll notice that nine out of the ten punchlines are delivered by all the male characters, and the female characters are there to uh, almost as a vehicle to get to the joke. Uh, you know, the guy's being obnoxious uh-huh. or silly, mm-hmm. and the woman's like, mm-hmm, "Why are you doing that?" And then it's all about the guy getting the funny parts, mm-hmm. and the woman is just there as sort a sort of buffer. a sidekick or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's rarely discussed in shows that are beloved by a lot of people. It's like, why why isn't the woman ever getting an opportunity to make a joke or do slapstick uh-huh. or anything? Um, and do you see that mirrored in real life to a degree? Not so much in real life because real life is unscripted. And, yeah. and you know, I've mm-hmm. met so many hilarious women in real life. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I think that... A lot of female comedians, um, it depends on the comedian, but their their comedy is all anchored to the fact that they're a woman and dating. And mm-hmm. it's all about their gender identity. Right. It's like when male comedians typically, they, they talk about everything. Right. You know, mm-hmm. of course, there's penis jokes. Yeah. But it's not so much about I'm a man, I'm a man, I'm a man. It's yeah. just like I'm a person. Yeah. Here's my opinions. And um, one of the things I noticed recently is that whenever there's a big terrorist attack or, or like a shooting, mass shooting, 
it seems like there's always men on the scene commenting and they make these comments like, oh, that this person was a coward using this language, which seems to be very conventionally, um, you know, about machismo. Mm. And there, I feel like there's sort of an absence of women on the scene. Have you noticed that? I actually haven't really noticed. You're talking about reporters, yeah. news reporters mm-hmm. who are overwhelmingly male talking about a shooting that's just after happened? there's been a mass shooting or okay. uh, a terrorist attack right. or attempt you know it seems like you don't see women on the street reporting i don't know mm. if it's partially because women are not getting those jobs because women are not you know moving up the ladder in in the workplace right or if it's also this idea that we need a male voice to speak out on such a serious situation yeah an emergency situation right to calm the populace right yeah because you know the male voice is authority Mm -hmm. it's calming it's reasonable and logical and i don't know maybe there's this whole oh this is a dangerous scene honey you better stay at the station Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) and i've i've been reading a book so it's good we're talking about this i've been reading a book called Women in Power by Mary Beard that I'm proud to say my own father sent to me because he's a feminist. That's great. And um, the author talks about how public speaking and power were always defined as uniquely male since Greek and Roman times. And she brings up incidents from today like Elizabeth Warren being silenced when she tried to read Coretta Scott King's letter in Congress. Um, on Jeff Sessions. But I'm also thinking about this in terms of something that's just unfolding in the news right now about Maura Dunnigan. So if my listeners don't know, um, Maura Dunnigan is a young journalist who just came forward recently in a New York Times interview to admit that she was the creator of a spreadsheet that got passed around to women journalists and, and then kind of went viral. And this spreadsheet was a list of men from the media, journalists who allegedly harassed or, or assaulted women. Um, anonymous women added the names of these men in the media and in other spheres whom they say, I think it's mostly in journalism, though, and they say who they say sexually assaulted or raped them sometimes violently. And sometimes it was multiple women saying the same thing about the same man. And that man's name was highlighted in red. And this young woman knew that another journalist was about to publish a story about the spreadsheet and possibly out her. So she decided to come forward and out herself. And what struck me about this is how terrified this young woman seems for her life. Uh, I was just wondering if you have any thoughts on that, on the risks that women take when they speak out about this situation. Women definitely take risks because in the online sphere, it's so prevalent to be just blasted with hate and threatening messages and rape threats and death threats and everything like that. And it's really not all that difficult. You don't have to be a hacker or a member of Anonymous to find out where somebody lives, what their phone number is, Mm -hmm. and the, you know, purchase price of their house. And, you know, it's it's very easy to track people down. Mm -hmm. And what strikes me is supposedly there were other women who came forward either to protect this woman or, you know, who said that they were the creator of this list, which she just thought would go around to her friends. And somehow it kind of got Mm. passed around to more and more people. Um, And then she took it down quickly because she was afraid supposedly but what occurs to me is it could there could have been more than one list mm-hmm. you know that and just also what what can women do to protect themselves if you know I mean I understand the the reaction because like that's the other thing like um is you know some people are saying well these men don't have what do they uh, th- some of them could be innocent and now they're losing their jobs because of this list right you know 
So that's, you know, that kind of debate came up in terms of Al Franken and the Ansari. Right. The fact that some people are upset about the idea that there could be innocent men that were harmed. Do you have any thoughts on that issue? I am concerned about false accusations and, uh, you know, the careers of, of people who have done nothing wrong being ruined. Um, you know, that has happened, I think, for some YouTubers, you know, who's, who's, who have lost all their followings and essentially their job, because mm-hmm. their job was getting paid to make YouTube videos, for example, because, you know, people took something the wrong way and, mm-hmm. and now they're just totally blacklisted Mm -hmm. and I think sometimes unfairly so yeah that's a concern but it has to be all right so is it worth the risk though you know is it is it safer to not publicize all these men at all just to preserve their careers yeah because the thing is what I'm thinking about is how okay a lot of women who have you know don't speak up generally speaking enough about their sexual assault because they're afraid for their careers, especially in the workplace, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why it was so silent for so long about Weinstein and these, you know, predators because people wanted, they didn't want to lose their jobs or be be blacklisted or something like that, Mm -hmm. you know, or maybe even outside of the workforce, they thought, well, police are not going to take this seriously because they, you know, in most cases, this doesn't, nothing ever happens to the the, uh, rapist. So, I mean, it occurs to me, she wanted to protect herself and protect her friends right and that was why she was circulating this list you know it was like another way of doing the whisper network or something that people talk about but in a sort of digital way right right so i don't know um it just that's the other edge to it it's like what what are we supposed to do to protect ourselves? Like, because yeah. some of these women like there were many women that were had this experience with the same man right right yeah so um, so what do you think could be done right now to improve the lives of women? I mean, I, I heard an interesting interview on the radio in which a man was talking about how the language around sexual assault itself has to change because the focus has always been on the woman who suffered the abuse. So it's a little bit related to what I was just asking you is if she's marked in some way as a rape victim and it's rarely about the specific men responsible for the crime. Right. I I read an excellent article about the Aziz Ansari debacle, and it made a great point that hasn't been talked about enough, mm-hmm. I don't think, where Aziz Ansari put forth his statement and he said, I am, ap- I'm sorry, I'm apologizing, I misread the situation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's important to apologize for people you hurt. Mm -hmm. But what's more important is to understand what you're apologizing for. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a lot of these men don't get why they're apologizing. They're Mm -hmm. sorry, supposedly, but they don't understand what they did wrong. And that's the real problem, because if you don't understand why you hurt them Mm -hmm. or made them uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. you're going to keep doing it to Mm -hmm. other people. So Mm -hmm. I think that men really need to be questioned a little bit deeper, you know, if even if it means going play by play through the whole night. It's like, well, when I said, let's slow down, and then three minutes later, you were trying to get me mm-hmm. to give you head, what <laughs> what was that about? Mm-hmm. I mean, did you just forget? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you have the memory span of a fruit fly? I mean, mm-hmm. we really need to dissect that from mm-hmm. the men's perspective. What don't you understand? Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, do you, do you think a real change is occurring? Um, we know that many famous men have lost their jobs, women are speaking out, but we still have Donald Trump alleged sexual assaulter of uh, 23 women, including his ex-wife, Ivana Trump, who later recanted. Um, and we have him as president. He remains immune. 
Um, but I mean, I, I want to say that what you before I get get to that when you were saying that men have to understand what they're apologizing for that's a good point but I also think it is a new thing that men are apologizing or acknowledging publicly that Mm. this is real yes they're pretty much forced to I mean we're we're holding their feet to the fire now yeah you know it's like all eyes are on you yeah millions you got to say something yeah which is kind of exciting actually because in this in the social media age it's kind of new it is new it definitely is and it you know it, it actually uh, it's occurred to me that as these men like lose their, you know, fall off their perches, that's sort of an opening for a woman to take that job, basically, you <laughs> that's know, true. Um, and just sort of shifting human resources and, you know, how they do how they handle complaints and things like that. But do you do you think so you acknowledge that this is a change, like what's happening now? And, and you think that even though we have this president who's still in, he's in office, in a way he's do you think that that sort of has force this conversation? I think so. Mm -hmm. I think Trump being in office uh, has definitely spurred this conversation and this Me Too movement in part. I think there's many factors at play Mm -hmm. here, but I think Trump is absolutely one of them. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like we go backwards as we go forwards, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I I think the pendulum is swinging back and forth. It's going to be messy and... I mean, especially when you think of the whole equal pay, the fight for equal pay and Mm -hmm. reproductive rights being on the line um, and our government still dominated by men, although more women are running for office. So, right, right. So let's see, what else did I not ask you? Or is there anything else that we should talk about that came to your mind? Hmm. Well, Hmm. you asked me a little while ago about what issues regarding sexism are not really talked about a mm-hmm. lot. And I yeah. had another thought that I forgot. I just okay. remembered. And uh-huh. I think that a lot of our discussions about the male versus the female brain and how mm-hmm. men are visual learners and that's why they love porn. And, <laughs> um, you know, women tend to be more uh, passive and um, maybe not as good at math and science. Those statements really really upset me Mm -hmm. because that's that's essentialism Mm -hmm. right so essentialism is this belief that men and women are just fundamentally different and you know they treat the brain like it's a sex organ and Uh they just love to to dissect you know how the male brain works versus how the female brain works and it's so um it, it it's very dichotomizing. Yeah. You know, we love to do this in general. Everything's mm-hmm. black or white, good or evil, virgin whore. Uh-huh. You know, and we forget that there's there I think there's more differences among women and among men than there are between the sexes, actually. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people disagree with that. I don't think that men are inherently violent or aggressive or perverted. And I don't believe that women are inherently passive and nurturing, dewy lilacs. I think that's really sexist. Mm-hmm. Um I think that that um the sex drive between men and women are actually not as different as we like to think it is mm-hmm. and as far as the sciences and 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 math and technology and how so many men dominate that field still it does sort of suggest that men have a innate knack for it right but i think that when we think of men being so good with numbers and logic and spatial awareness and everything there's women who are good at the exact same thing but just with female um, hobbies. Okay. So like, you know, crocheting mm-hmm. or knitting. Mm-hmm. 
I think that those things can be very complex. Mm-hmm. And because it's a woman's thing. Or it's, traditional, like cliche. Yeah, it's a cliche. Too. It's a cliche mm-hmm. woman's hobby. Yeah. It's not really viewed as anything that that uses the left side of the brain. Mm-hmm. And I think it does. Mm-hmm. And, I, and we say that men are so visual. It's like, well, women are visual, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I would like to say. And of course, I just have to mention that gender identity is now so much more complicated that somebody might might say, oh, I have a female brain, even though I'm in a male body and vice versa. And there's all that as well. But absolutely. Yeah, right. Um, And I think that, you know, it's interesting when you have these statements like traditionally women have been child rearers even still Mm -hmm. and and cooks Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's all about nourishing. And then you take anything that's traditionally feminine fashion, cooking. And when you get to the outside world and who's at the very top, it's always men. Mm-hmm. The best chefs in the world. Oh, that's a good men. point. That's the a best really good fashion point. designers. Mm-hmm. Men, men, men. Mm-hmm. Even though those are traditionally female realms. So mm-hmm. what's up with that? Uh-huh. And I think oh, that's interesting. it's yeah. because men want status and power and power and women want to be useful that's Mm -hmm. why you see so many women in cafeterias and schools and so many men in manhattan's top restaurants Mm -hmm. it's about status versus usefulness but don't you think that there are women who also want to be at the top as well so it's not that they're just being selfless and saying oh "Oh, i need to be of use but Mm -mm. that they're actually actively pushed out in a way because of sexual harassment like we've been hearing all over about in your own experience a lot of people have left their jobs because of that so they can't advance up the you know exactly to be a top chef or fashion designer exactly mm-hmm. right so there's so many levels right <laughs> layers right well, I think we were about ready to wrap up at this point. Um, you've been listening to Under the Surface. I've been talking to Jess Batchelor, a 31-year-old writer and outspoken feminist from Central Connecticut. And thanks so much, Jess, for being a guest on today's show. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. It's been really eye-opening having you here. Um, and thanks for listening, everybody. Um, please tune in again next Sunday at 12 noon. I'm going to leave you with another song chosen by my guest. This one is called Female Smuggler by Rasputina, a women's cello rock band that includes men. Have a great week, everybody. <laughs>